Hello, friend. Thanks, as always, for joining me here on The Tully Show. A special thank you to this week's guest, Lisa Lin, who joined us all the way from Singapore, gamely battling through illness and a neighbor making some ill-timed and hopefully inaudible home improvements in the next apartment real quick before we get into our interview a reminder the holiday season is upon us there's two kinds of people people who care what it sounds like when steve perry from journey makes a christmas album and people who don't if you are in the first category have i got some holiday themed podcasts for you and much more exclusively at patreon.com slash mike tully patreon.com slash mike tully Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is the Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully, joining me today from Singapore, a reporter from the China Bureau of the Wall Street Journal, who along with Josh Chin is the co-author of a book entitled Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. Hello and welcome, Lisa Lin. Hey Mike, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me despite uh, being under the weather. I appreciate you soldiering forward. No worries. So for starters, what is your specific role with the Wall Street Journal? What is your day in, day out work life like? And I guess out of all of the aspects of the beat that you cover, the stories and places that you and your co-author cover, why did the two of you settle on this subject for uh, for a whole book? Sure. I've been with the Wall Street Journal as the China tech reporter for about six years at this point. And you know, when you cover technology, you do cover a very broad range of areas from internet companies to social media companies to semiconductors and chips and even something like digital surveillance. The, the, what really got Josh and I started on this book was in 2017, I was tracking the money that was going into Chinese tech startups. And I realized a lot of money was going into an area that I, I hadn't noticed money going in before. And it was specifically going into arti artificial intelligence. And it wasn't just every aspect of AI. It was image recognition, computer vision, facial recognition stuff. And that really kind of piqued my interest because typically when you think about investing in the China tech space, you think about investing in internet apps or e-commerce. You know, And that was... Uh, that was the hot topic at that point. Uh, no, no one was really looking into AI until, until up to that month when I was looking at the data. So that got me interested. And Josh and I decided to approach one of these startups to see if they would do an interview with us. Um, and you know, the startup was at that point unknown, but at this at this stage, like people know it as China's largest AI company. It's called SenseTime. 
when we went to SenseTime's offices, actually what we saw really shocked us when we walked into that office. And keep in mind, this is like 2017. This is before a lot of these facial recognition reports that come out. We saw these TV panels covering the entire wall of the office, and they were streaming video footage from a street intersection that was just outside that office. And what you saw was there was an algorithm that was boxing up every object and every person that was walking by. If you were a human, you would be boxed up as you know female in your 40s, red shirt. If it was a car, it would be like red sedan. Um, and it even had like a make and model. So it would say you know, Toyota or Volkswagen and what model it was. And it was really shocking. And Josh and I found out a lot of these systems were being sold to police stations in China and in the name of national security. And that really got us down this path of tracking how China's, China had expanded its digital surveillance state. That's interesting because I guess it's a shorter timeline than I was expecting. If that was surprising to you five years ago, and now it's fairly common knowledge to anybody who's paying attention in the rest of the world, this is something that's on an extremely rapid trajectory. So I, I when I reached out to you initially, I said that I have an interest, you know, I, I'm following China, like I'm following, you know, all sorts of uh, news stories and newsworthy subjects, but particularly because I've had a long interest in George Orwell. 1984 is the landmark George Orwell book. And in retrospect, you look at that written in 1948 and you realize as terrifying a vision as it portrayed what it was, this future it was prophesying was very impractical because of the actual manpower that would be involved. To spy on citizens 24 hours a day means you almost need to have one spy for every single person. The game changer, it would seem, is the technology, right? For the the future that ever that Orwell and so many other people feared the better part of a hundred years ago. Now it sort of is practical, and that's because I mean, can you talk about the role specifically that AI is something we all talk about? Honestly, I don't really know what I'm saying when I say it. How does AI contribute to uh, government surveillance? Yeah, that, that's actually a great question because China has all along wanted to be a surveillance state, mm -hmm. but it is, I think, only in the last decade or so as we've seen technological advances come about that we've seen them actually truly become a very capable surveillance state. In the past, AI was always something that you would see in PhD researcher labs or in like colleges where scientists were poring over and trying to figure out what was the best commercial application for it. Now with these GPUs, these high-performance chips, it actually enabled AI to move from a PhD lab to more commercial applications, such as facial recognition. And we, we saw you know, Facebook use it in the early days when they were starting out um, as a website and an app. In China, however, you know, that facial recognition has been taken to use by the Chinese police. So this really ushered in this whole new cycle of digital surveillance in China that, that wasn't possible before, because now instead of having you know, a man watching camera feeds 24-7 and down camera feeds, right? So feeds that can't give you any insight it has to be a human making a decision. Now you had an AI at the back end. So that means 24-7, you had someone behind your camera ready to flag whenever, whenever something untoward seemed to be happening. 
So you've touched on the ways in which Silicon Valley has enabled or ex- uh, contributed to the existence of the Chinese surveillance state. Would you say it's more accurate to say that there was technology that was, if not but benevolent, sort of morally, culturally neutral that has been perverted by the Chinese government? Or would you say that it's closer to the truth to say that some companies in Silicon Valley have been actively complicit? in helping to develop tools that could be tools of oppression. Yeah, so the Silicon Valley component has two sides of it. Mm-hmm. Firstly, it was just being the inspiration for this huge miracle grow in surveillance in China over the last like five to six years. But I think the second side of Silicon Valley's involvement uh, in the surveillance state is really providing some of the components that power China's actual surveillance state. And this isn't something that's recent. In fact, ever since 2000, the year 2000, uh, Josh and I had been monitoring which were some of the companies that turned up uh, at China's kind of public security exhibitions. So these would be exhibitions where Chinese police would often attend and they would try and, and you had had a whole host of companies um, showcase some of the equipment that they hoped to sell to Chinese police. And at one of the very first exhibitions in the year 2001, we saw Silicon Valley names already there present trying to hog their wares. And these were Silicon Valley pioneers like Sun Microsystems, Cisco, you know, and there was even like the now defunct Nortel Networks uh, and Germany Siemens. All these companies were at the exhibition eager to sell entire systems of surveillance to Chinese police. Fast forward to 2022, you're seeing Silicon Valley companies selling not just entire systems, but they're selling the components that go into the surveillance state. So, for example, NVIDIA provides a lot of these high processing GPUs and semiconductors that enable facial recognition, both in the databases and on the camera itself, allowing Chinese police to use facial recognition to nail down um, nail down protesters. And you see companies such as Western Digital and Seagate, for example, who are selling the hard disk drive space. Because when it comes to video footage, you need a ton of storage and has to be stored somewhere. And very often the cheapest and the most efficient option is to put them on a hard disk drive. So there's a ton of tech involvement from Silicon Valley that has existed throughout the decades. And and based on what you're saying, it doesn't sound like you could be forgiven for maybe not understanding what you were getting in bed with, uh, what sort of deals you were making 20 years ago. You haven't seen anybody pump the brakes as it's become sort of clear what the real ramifications of the tech, use of the technology is. I, I gather that's the case. I would describe it as 20 years ago, a lot of these Western companies were expanding in China. You know, there was a naive optimism right. almost. When it came to China as a market, people were in the boardrooms of these companies, people were often discussing what was the fastest way to expand, what is the quickest way to earn profit. Uh, That was the sort of market China was seen at at that point. Today, I think past, uh, particularly after the Trump administration and because the Biden administration has continued some of these harsher export control policies on China, a lot of the discussion in company boardrooms now are what's our regulatory risk to expanding in China? How do we make sure that our systems aren't lost in the supply chain and getting sold to Chinese military or Chinese police? Uh, so there's a lot of deeper thinking um, about the risk in the market and less of its potential. 
One really landmark regulation by the Biden administration recently was an October 7th regulation that put in place export controls that didn't allow U.S. tech companies to sell chips or any chip making equipment um, that would feed into China's high end chip making uh, capability. And because so many high-end chips are required in Chinese surveillance, just blocking off that spigot would likely impact the Chinese surveillance state at some level. So what is the current state of the of the surveillance state? I, I don't know if there is such a thing as an average citizen in China. You're talking about a nation of 1.4 billion people. But in, in the here and now, if I am a, an ordinary Chinese citizen, what does it mean on my phone? What does it mean when I'm walking down the street? What does it mean as I try to make plans for what college I want to go to or where I want to go on vacation or whatever? I often tell people that China, China surveillance state really stands out for two reasons. First is the scale of it. And then the next is the ambition. And when you speak about the scale, I can give you a sense of like how many sensors and cameras are soaking up your data when you're moving around China. China has about 400 million surveillance cameras on the street and unlike places like the u.s where a lot of these surveillance cameras are privately owned right uh, in cam in, in china these cameras are often owned by local police so that means like the authorities have access to 400 million cameras and the footage that's streaming in they also have access to a variety of new laws related to national security and intelligence that were put in over the last decade they also have access to a lot of corporate data and a lot of the data that's in your cell phone, for example, because many of the apps in China are powered by Chinese internet companies that have to answer to these laws. And that means probably in the range of about a billion smartphones that are in China right now. And the difference between, and you, you, people ask sometimes, like, what's the difference between China and the US? I think the difference between China and the US is the singular access that local public security has to all that data. In China, for example, you know, everyone carries an ID card and that ID card has a photo of you, biometric information that allows Chinese police to track down someone easily because that ID card has where you stay, who your who your family is, you know, where you grew up, um, what you look like. So it makes it very easy if you're caught on a camera to be identified using facial recognition and trace back. In China, the apps also collect a more wide range of personal information than Western apps do. So, for example, in the U.S., if you needed to know um, what someone was buying, you'd have to go to Amazon for his buying habits. If you wanted to know what that person was thinking about you know, and saying in chat messages or uh, posting on social media, you'd have to go to Facebook. And Facebook often has like this person's social network as well. If you want to know what that person was searching, you would go to Google. In, in China, a lot of those capabilities is centralized in one particular app, and it's called WeChat. Sure. WeChat is this do-it-all for, for people who don't know WeChat. WeChat is this kind of one-stop shop app that allows people to chat with their friends, post what they're feeling that day. You know, in, in a way, it's like the Facebook homepage or Instagram homepage, except that it also has mobile payment functions, so it knows what you're buying. And you can use that on the transportation system, which means that WeChat knows where you're traveling. 
you can often, people often buy train and, and flight tickets on WeChat too. So that makes it very easy for the Chinese government to get information about one person because there is that one-stop shop instead of going through several different companies. And I think to cap it off, you know, the, the access to that data um, in the U.S., it's not that easy for the FBI to get data from companies. And they have to go to the courts, get a subpoena, and then go to the companies and ask for such data. And companies don't always share that data. We've seen companies such as Apple push back, for example, when asked for, da for data from local law enforcement. In China, there is no such thing because Chinese internet and national security laws mean that as long as a more senior police officer has signed off on that warrant, the police could go to you as a Chinese company and you would have no legal recourse or way to push back on that demand for data. So China really stands out for that. And, and secondly, you know, it stands out for the ambition of what it's trying to achieve. It's trying to build this techno-utopian country in which surveillance isn't just stick, but also carrot, you know. So trying to use the data collected to try and mine mind insight into what residents are feeling, what frictions they face in life, and hopefully try and solve them uh, through government intervention. Right. And I'm glad you touch on that because uh, we think of it's just surveillance is synonymous with dystopia in our conception of it. You say techno-utopia. We tend to think of that this is something that the government is doing to the people and the people are either uh feel powerless to stop it aren't fully aware of it or are i mean this is this is uh, insensitive but true kind of too dumb to realize how bad a thing is happening to them but that's not the case the reality is of course there are benefits to having this sort of uh across the board surveillance and across the board involvement i didn't expect to even be asking you this question when i started digging into the book but like can you talk about some of the positives that come from all this, specifically in the book you touch on the city of uh, Hangzhou. Am I saying that correctly? Hangzhou, oh, yes. So close. <laughs> <laughs> and the ways in which it's sort of a model city for the ways in which technology can, in a, in a coordinated government orchestrated way, can really be helpful to people's everyday lives. So when Josh and I were researching the book, we found that state surveillance in China was really two sides of a coin. Mm -hmm. um, and depending on where you are and who you are, state surveillance could be either very sinister or actually very attractive. So when we talk about Hangzhou, we're really looking at the side of the coin where people actually see positive externalities to that data collection. And because they, and because they actually experience these benefits, they don't mind the data that's being mopped up around them. Uh, what you saw in Hangzhou really was, and and to to give you some background on Hangzhou, because it's not really um, a city that most people would recognize by name in America. It is a very wealthy city, just two hours from Shanghai, and even if the name itself doesn't ring a bell, um, some of the companies that are headquartered there might. So, uh, a company like Alibaba, for example, is headquartered in Hangzhou, and uh, Hangzhou is also home to two of the world's largest surveillance camera makers, Hikvision and Dahua. So it's a very wealthy city. And because it's also home to such big technological giants, it's the city government is very inclined to using technology to try and make 
life in the city just a lot more frictionless and run more smoothly. In Hangzhou, the surveillance cameras are used in tandem with facial recognition algorithms, and they're used to pinpoint persons of interest that the police actually feel might be a threat to society. So, for example, you know, the facial recognition cameras could spot people such as uh, wanted fugitives or others who are known to be notorious drug pushers, people that you really don't want walking on the street next to you and your children. So it is actually used to keep streets safer. Um, and the other big thing that uh, they were known for was uh, uh, Hangzhou is a city where the road infrastructure has not changed over the last two decades. But over the last two decades, the population has more than quadrupled. So imagine your road infrastructure hasn't changed. You have a very immature subway system and everyone's driving cars. So Hangzhou is really notorious for its jams. It was one to vote it, I think, the fifth most congested city in China. And I have been in a Hangzhou jam and you're like just moving meters in like half an hour. So it's a very horrible situation to be in. But what the cameras did was to soak up a lot of information on the car flow. So it could optimize traffic lights so that in times um, of heavy traffic, the traffic lights would turn green for longer. So that would allow the congestion to clear. Um, and th the camera networks on, on the highways would also spot traffic accidents very quickly and send an alert to traffic police, even before anyone could call the traffic police to let them know, so that first responders could get to the scene and clear up the incident and have traffic flowing smoothly again. So I think after two years of using such a surveillance system, like Hangzhou dropped from fifth most congested city to 57th most congested city in China. Yeah, so that was really kind of one of the perks of the surveillance system. But the most amazing thing I think that I found when I was researching Hangzhou was, uh, I was, I, so these systems can also recognize your license plates. So it's image recognition that's used in conjunction with the video camera feeds. And when it recognizes your license plates for certain first responders, it can turn the lights green throughout your whole journey. So I spoke to a guy whose mom had fallen into a river in Hangzhou. And she was very lucky because a neighbor was around the corner and fished her out. But she, she was still in need of medical help. Uh, and there's still water in her lungs that needed to be pumped out. So they sent an ambulance from the nearest hospital over. And when she was being brought, back to the hospital for treatment, the ambulance turned on a system that allowed like the camera networks to recognize its license plate and it turned the lights green throughout her entire journey. And that kind of halved the time that it took, that it would have taken for her to get to the hospital. And in such life and death situations, you do realize how technology can play a very, very important role. And that's why it's bound to uh, appeal to the vast majority of people. It's not that hard of a, a sell. We hear it here in the States all the time. People will say, well, the, the stock answer, I'm not doing anything wrong. So what do I have to worry about? I only stand to benefit from, uh, from this. And they'll only catch bad guys. In the here and now, if you want to talk a little bit about the negatives of the present day, you have to start with the, the the Uyghur population and the ways in which, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the reality of being a member of of that culture and the ways in which you're sort of born guilty and treated as such by this sophisticated surveillance system? Sure. For those who don't know the Uyghur population very well, I can give a quick introduction. Yeah. The Uyghurs are a Turkic Muslim um, population that live in the northwestern part 
of China in this place called Xinjiang. And Xinjiang is probably notorious for really being the first city in China that was a true digital surveillance state. Um, now, you know, post-COVID, we've really seen the surveillance um, spread out across China because the government's tracking everyone for contact tracing purposes. But pre-pandemic, I mean, Xinjiang was really the place that was flooded with sensors and where the Chinese police were trying, probably carrying out the world's most ambitious kind of predictive policing experiment in which they were soaking up data. Um, from the Uyghur population and using that data to try and predict who might be a potential national security threat, either like a physical terrorist or someone that might stir up dissent uh, among the Uyghur population. So Xinjiang's history is that it's always been a region where a lot of Turkic Muslims live and not too many Han Chinese have lived in that region until in the past like decade or so where there have been waves of migration uh, by Han Chinese from the other parts of China into Xinjiang for economic reasons or you know, commercial reasons whatsoever. Uh, and this kind of wave of migration has created a lot of tension between the actual Han Chinese migrants and you know, the Uyghurs and the Tur Turkic Muslims who are the original residents in that region. And that tension has resulted in uh, a couple of very combustible conflicts uh, since like 2010. And for that reason, like the Chinese government has always seen Xinjiang as a very restive part of the country and have decided to carry out this really quite sinister predictive policing experiment there. So what the authorities are doing in Xinjiang is they're soaking up information from people and very, very innocuous information sometimes too, such as, do you go to a mosque? Uh, each week, how many times do you pray? Do you own a passport? Have you traveled to places like Turkey, where more radical Islam um, practices have been you know, known to be carried out? Or do you drink alcohol, for example, because it, it's an indication of how religious you are? Sure. Have you had a religious education? And they're using, they're collecting all this data and they're using it to paint a picture of a person to ascertain if this person could be a potential like national security threat in future. And if that person or individual is one, then they get thrown into these networks of internment camps where they're subject to, you know, lessons on Communist Party propaganda every every day. They're forced to learn and and recite Communist Party mantras, and they're forced to give up their religious habits, such as, you know, for, for Muslims, you're not supposed to eat pork, but they're asked to eat pork, or they're not allowed to pray in the, these internment camps. Um, and actually, that's been really labeled by uh, several Western governments and, and human rights advocates as almost like genocide, cultural genocide. The, the problem with this experiment in Xinjiang is, you know, when the Chinese police were using all these variables to try and paint a picture of what a possible terrorist is, is that it's very difficult for you to do that. I mean, there is no established study out there pointing to how XYZ indicator would make someone a terrorist. A lot of it's extrapolation and extrapolation from uh, very peripheral uh, data points. You know, it's not like you could read this person's mind and know that this person was a terror. It has some terrorist leanings. It's just figuring out from his day-to-day -day lifestyle habits if he could possibly be one. And that's really dangerous because what, in the, what eventually happened was 
a lot of people were pulled into these camps and people who are very, very ordinary, like you and I. Uh, and very often there were intellectuals that were pulled into camps as well. It wasn't just, you know, the net was cast so wide that it wasn't just potential national security threats. It was like intellectuals, um, people who just simply didn't see eye to eye on the Communist Party narrative about the region. It, it seemed to me, in what little I know about it, that they had the capability to cast, as you say, a very wide net so that the, the thinking seems to have been, if we get everyone on whom there's any data to suggest they could possibly be a terrorist or a terrorist sympathizer, we're bound to get all of the actual terrorists and terrorist sympathizers, and we're not too concerned about all of the other people we got who shouldn't have been there. Does that sound about right? Yes, you're right, except that such a thing probably backfired on the Chinese government because, you know, many Uyghurs never saw themselves as terrorists mm. and were actually quite content being Chinese citizens. But this whole episode has turned uh, a ton of people in the local Turkic Muslim populations like, against authorities. So people are a lot more unhappy than they were before. I know this is outside of your specialty, but I'm just so curious to know, and I, I guess I have the same question every time a, a, a world power is trying to suppress a, a, a fringe population, a minority population. Why? It costs so much money to do this. It sparked so much international outrage. What does China actually stand to gain? What What is the best case scenario for them here? Even get them. It doesn't sound like the juice is worth the squeeze. Are they just too far in? Because I know this is not a, it's, it's a new way of pursuing a goal, but it's not a new goal that they are pursuing a, as a government. Have they just been doing this for too long to just say, eh, we don't actually really need that region that bad anyway? Yeah, that's a tricky question. And it's really hard to know what the Communist Party thinks, mm. uh, particularly from the outside. My kind of reading of the situation is that they had these tools at their disposal and they wanted to try something new. Uh, what they were aiming for wasn't aiming to oppress an entire population. What they wanted to do was to re-engineer some of these ethnic minorities to become more Han. So, you know, for example, um, when you recite Communist Party mantra in, in these internment camps, you often learn Han Chinese as well. So it just makes them more like the dominant race in China and less like the ethnic minority population that they are. And it's also sparked by the thinking that, uh, and this was really started by the war on terror, it was sparked by the thinking that a lot of the tensions um, in Xinjiang wasn't just sparked by the waves of migration going in. It was sparked by the idea that radical Islam was taking taking root in Xinjiang and they needed to do something in a more forceful and immediate manner. And I think that's why they reacted this way. Broadening our scope a little bit, what, if anything, would you say uh, Chinese surveillance capability means for, for non-Chinese people? I don't personally have TikTok, but I've heard, you know, from, from some pretty high-ranking people in the American government that it might not be a great idea for me to, to start now. I sometimes wonder, given the amount of technology that Americans carry on in their pocket that's made in China, given TikTok, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, do you 
believe that if China had some interest in wanting to know what I was talking about on a day-to-day -day basis, that they could and would pursue that. They would successfully be able to do that. Do you believe that China, you would seem like a person they would want to keep tabs on. Do you think China is spying on you? Do you think it's crazy to think that there are U.S. senators and congresspeople whose phones are going straight to Beijing whenever Beijing wants them to? Or is that still in the realm of fantasy? Yes, I think it's yes and no. Um, uh, so yes, because the Chinese government has all these laws that compel Chinese companies to share data with them in the name of national security, and there's no pushback to it. So yes, if China wanted your data from TikTok, it could go to TikTok and say, you know, I want Mike Tully's um, browsing feed and what is he watching uh, on TikTok. But the question really is, would China want to go down that route? I'm just focusing on TikTok right now. You know, TikTok collects a lot of information about you, but it's not the type of information that Facebook, for example, has about Mike Tully. TikTok doesn't really know who your social networks are because when you follow people on TikTok, it's not because you're following them because they're friends. You're following them because you find their videos entertaining. Um, and if you think about the personal information that TikTok collects, it really pales in comparison to what Instagram and what Meta knows about you, because Instagram knows your buying habits. When you registered on Facebook years ago, you put down your birthday, you put your hometown, you put down where you went to school. So there's a lot of personal information that Western companies hold that TikTok doesn't. And in terms of getting information, you know, Western social media companies are subject to cybersecurity hacks all the time. And if China wanted that information, they could easily go to the dark web and buy it. It's, it's a much simpler and probably more efficient way of getting information about an individual than actually asking TikTok for that information. So yes, I do think the TikTok threat is huge, but I do think the threat really comes from information control and not from data um, sharing and data access. I think the threat to TikTok, in my opinion, and because I cover the Chinese internet space and I've seen this play out, particularly with like China's... Um, China's version of TikTok, Douyin, which is run by the same company. I mean, the Chinese government can easily go to these companies and say, could you use your algorithm to play up certain types of information to make us look better in the global space? For example, you know, with Uyghurs, could you play up more of our narrative of what's happening in Xinjiang, which is that we are using a very novel method to counter terrorism? instead of playing up the Western narrative or the narrative that you often see uh, Western media, Western governments kind of report on about how there's cultural genocide happening in that region. So to me, that's the bigger danger of having TikTok in the US. It's not the data access, but the ability for China to go to TikTok and say, would you be able to put such um, videos that would put us in a favorable light? Or for example, during an election, could you put more videos of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden and take out videos that put Donald Trump in the negative light, for example. So they could manipulate a lot of public opinion in the U.S. using TikTok, which I think would be a much bigger danger than just the data access itself.
Right. It's probably fair to assume that there's quite a bit of divide and conquer already going on being directed by foreign powers as it is on, on social media. A house divided against itself can't stand, as Abraham Lincoln said. And so, and at the moment, we're pretty much a house divided. So let's talk about the 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 future in, in whatever uh, term you want to talk about it, whatever is realistic to even speculate about five years, 10, 10 years, 20 years. What does China's government ultimately hope? What's their pie in the sky scenario for domestic surveillance in a fully mature form? Um, and how likely would you guess they are to the extent that anybody can guess to achieve their goals? And, 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 and most importantly, what will that mean? for the life of a, a Chinese citizen, somebody who is, you know, just being born now when they're a 30 year old adult, what is this likely to mean for their life? Ultimately, the end goal of the Communist Party is to create a governance system using mining of data and mining, mining that data for insight. Uh, it's to create a governance model that would be able to rival democracy within China itself. Because if you think about China now, it doesn't have a lot of democratic institutions, such as the free press, freedom of speech on the internet, freedom of speech in general, uh, elections. There aren't these democratic uh, institutions that allow the Chinese Communist Party to understand what are the friction points um, in its society. And the Communist Party, even though they're authoritarian, they, they need to stay in power by answering the needs of their people. So what the Communist Party is hoping to achieve with this surveillance state is hoping to mine out some insight that allows them to keep its citizens happy, the way citizens in democracies can you know, give feedback on something and have something done to reduce that unhappiness in return. The Communist Party wants to create this kind of alternative governance model almost, um, and then still stay in power, right? Because you still don't have those free elections. You still don't have the free press, but you have a much happier population that's kind of content with the status quo and don't they won't make too much noise. So I think that's the ultimate goal. In terms of getting there, I mean, there are several different challenges and, and these range from tech challenges to human challenges as well. One of the things that Josh and I found out when we were researching the book was the state surveillance system in China may sound so ominous, but in reality, it often doesn't work the way you expect it to work. You know, the cameras get broken all the time and they're not fixed. So very, very frequently you would see uh, erupt in the local press or on local social media how uh, a crime had taken place in the street. And you realize that even though there were five surveillance cameras on, on that street, three of them were broken and not fixed for months. So ultimately, you're left with two. Or you know, there, are, there are black holes in the surveillance system. You might not be able to talk in a cafe or uh, on the street where a ton of security cameras are, but you could get into a car and you'd still you know, turn off your phone and you would not be surveilled. So there are these places and pockets of privacy that people still have and they can use to evade the surveillance system. What was What is more important, I think, in the eyes of the Chinese government is for people to think that the state surveillance system works as amazingly as they're trying to say it does. So if you notice in China, like state surveillance is not a taboo topic. 
not the way it is in the US, where state surveillance is always this hush-hush hidden thing. In China, the newspapers talk very openly about how surveillance cameras are used to nab criminals, surveillance cameras are used to find adopted kids uh, and reunite them with their family. There are all these miracle ways that state surveillance has been used. And the whole idea of this is to create this illusion that state surveillance in China with the security network and all sorts of other senses is so impenetrable that the moment you do something wrong, you're caught. And once you have that belief, you know, all it takes is for your citizens to believe that the state surveillance system is working that way. And that makes it very effective. Yeah, half the work is already done if people believe. And this 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 harkens back to the Orwell eighty four thing, which is where everybody's got a camera in their room, and he says, "You you never know if anybody's actually looking at the feed on the other end." But the point is, you never know when somebody is looking at the feed on the other end. You touched on something that I found really a bit of a panopticon, right? Yeah, something that I I found really really fascinating uh, about the book. And, and, and you just said it, it makes so much sense. We tend to think of, we're thinking sort of like the matrix. They've got to find the Neo and root them out before they can lead the rebellion. But it can also just be a much more mundane thing of, let's just say, if everybody's complaining about taxes, you go, we're going to have to, before, we're going to have to cool it a little bit on taxes because that's the one thing that everybody's complaining about right now. And you can nip that, you, you can actually just address citizens' needs in a way that starts, uh, nips potential revolt or revolution in the bud. And, and that's exactly what you said. That's the way that it's being used. I'm sure they would rather use it that way than to have to actively be rooting out terrorists left and right or, or legitimate threats to regime change. And if you look at China right now, there just aren't that many channels for citizens to express the displeasure or feedback. Right. Because right. the internet controls are so strong that anytime you say something that's contrarian to what the Communist Party believes or the narrative that the Communist Party is pushing, that comment gets scrubbed by censors, either at the tech internet company level or by like an automated, like automated censorship bot. So it's very difficult for the Communist Party to understand or take a pulse on what the population is thinking by looking at social media because social media is so scrubbed. Right. Uh, And in China, there aren't polls. There there aren't polls the way, you know, Pew Research does polls in the U.S. There isn't like an independent body that does polling just to understand like how popular a leader is. All these things just don't exist. So because there are so few channels and the channels are shrinking, China is going to have to rely more and more on mining its citizens for data to gain insight. So it's a higher reliance on the surveillance system going forward than ever before. And not to mention that the economy in China is slowing. Um, and Xi Jinping's, I mean, Xi Jinping being the current Chinese leader, yep. his very heavy-handed leadership approach has caused a lot of dissatisfaction. So I think... You know, going forward, we'll see a lot more reliance on digital surveillance, um, both as a carrot and as a stick within China. You mentioned the party a number of times since we've been speaking. In the book, you say in China, the party stands above the government. And I've been sort of wrestling with that sentence. What what does that mean exactly? Uh, that means, you know, in a true authoritarian state, um, the greatest nexus of power lies in the head of the Communist Party of China and not the Chinese president. So a lot of the government functions have to answer to party committees. Uh, the party is like 
the top layer of power and what the party decides the government executes. So you don't have an independent judiciary as well, because whatever the party decides overrules what the judiciary can say. That's what it means. So the government ends up being uh, a, a tool of, of the party. Yeah, sorry, I'm not very eloquent on this part, but yes, essentially, <laughs> that's it. Um, uh, finally, to broaden our scope uh, all the way, the I think this is a quote from the book, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people are full of confidence they can... Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. This is a quote from the Chinese government, from the Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people are full of confidence that they can provide a China solution to humanity's search for better social systems. That sounds fairly ominous. What does that mean exactly? So there is this big misperception that China wants its model to rule the world. Mm -hmm. um, in, in reality, it's not that easy to replicate the Chinese surveillance system outside of China. You know, we've seen many companies try and buy such surveillance systems, but they often aren't used in uh, as effective a way as in China. Uh, there, are, there are numbers out there, of independent studies um, from the University of Texas that showed in 2000, in the year 2000, there are about 80 companies that have purchased uh, Chinese surveillance systems. But very honestly, you haven't heard of the same sort of success in these companies as you've, seen, as you've seen within China itself. And that's because China has a whole ecosystem for surveillance that has been built up over the years. You know, many of the companies that have bought these surveillance systems often didn't have national ID cards. You know, national ID cards isn't something that's very common in like Africa, for example, and a lot of the African nations, a lot of people still don't have an ID number. And if you don't have an ID number, an ID card, it's very hard to do the tracing, as I mentioned before. Uh, and China also has like a large bureaucratic system that functions actually quite well and relatively talented as well, because these digital systems are not that easy to use. They're complicated technology. Um, and when you buy the systems, you need to know how to work the systems well. And often in China, you do have policemen who are well-trained, who are able to do that, but not in developing countries, for example, you know, like Pakistan, who have bought such technology. It's not that common. So it all boils down to the man in the uniform. If the man in the uniform is able to work such technologies in a way that actually that use it very efficiently um, and in the way that China does. and Oftentimes in developing countries, the police force isn't the most digital, digitally savvy. Well, so okay. you're saying okay, yeah, ult saying. ultimately it's a it, it's a tool and, 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 and it still comes down to the, the human being's capability to uh, it's not it's not a one size fits all set it and forget it sort of thing. All of this having been said, uh, I understand what you're saying about the challenges in exporting this Chinese system to the world. But according to your book, China's surveillance equipment has been purchased by city governments and nations like France and Germany. I am uh, not a particularly cynical person compared to a lot of other people that I know, but I do believe that if power exists and it can be abused that it is only a matter of time until it is abused. It might take five months, it might take 50 years, but sooner or later, wherever wiggle room there is to manipulate power in the most uh, cynical and potentially illegal way possible, that's what's going to happen. 
I'm concerned to think about Western democracies using this same technology. Am I wrong to feel that way? No, you're not. And so I think there is a difference between the Chinese government selling this, these systems with the intent of keeping authoritarian governments in power. There's a difference between that and authoritarian governments abusing the system. Um, I, I do think that when Chinese sell these systems, it's a, a large part of it. And there are two reasons. Firstly, because it's economics, right? It's just very lucrative to sell these systems. I mentioned earlier that the two largest surveillance camera makers are Chinese. Um, and at this point, China has 400 million cameras. Do they really need too many more? They probably don't. So they need the export machine to keep humming for these cam camera companies to help keep jobs uh, running and keep jobs stable. And these camera systems are very expensive as well. So when China sells these systems to these countries, it's often, you know, one system can cost in the realm of hundreds of millions of dollars. They're not cheap. So it makes a lot of money for the Chinese export machine. The second reason why they're doing it is they really want to normalize this governance model. It's about answering to their own citizens. So every time you see uh, a country that's adopted a Chinese surveillance system or bought a Chinese surveillance system, you definitely see in local media how the Chinese media are playing this up as an example of China's technological progress and as an example of China's tech innovation that's that's been sold around the world and adopted around the world. So there's a element of national pride and also internal propaganda to it. And that's why China keeps doing it. That said, I think once they've sold the systems, it is really up to the governments buying the system to decide how they want to use it. And in some cases, uh, and in our book, we bring out the case of Uganda, we've seen governments abuse that system. So with Uganda, what happened was in 2018, uh, the Ugandan president bought, bought uh, a Huawei system for about $120 million. And it was a system that of security cameras and a backend system to monitor the fees from that security cameras that was installed in Kampala, which is Uganda's capital. So the Ugandan president, for people who don't know him well, he has been in power since 1986, uh, in part by rigging or in part by uh, manipulating local elections to stay in power. He bought the system ostensibly um, on the face of it. He said it was to fight crime in Kampala. But what we eventually saw him doing uh, in like 2020, at the end of 2020, when he was up for re-election again, was to use these systems and the facial recognition algorithm to identify protesters that were protesting against his re-election and locking them up before the actual election day. So yes, these systems have been abused by countries. And for more often than not, I think you're seeing these systems um, keep authoritarian governments in power and the status quo uh, going for longer. But I do think that there are checks and balances you could put in place. And in, in this case, I, I would bring up the example of the UK. The UK has a huge surveillance system as well. And they were far ahead. They, they, were, they were way ahead of China with that as well. Yes, they were way ahead of China in installing this in, in parts of London and, and other areas in the country. But the UK has like some checks and balances that I think is worth mentioning. For example, they have what they call a biometrics commissioner. It used to be called the surveillance camera commissioner. And this is an independent government body that 
serves as some form of oversight over the law enforcement agencies that use surveillance cameras. So every year, the law enforcement agency would have to submit reports about how effective the camera use has been and has it been more effective than traditional methods, for example, to justify its use and how are they using these cameras. Um, and the UK also has a code of conduct, conduct for using these cameras. So I think it's it's definitely the type of government that's buying these cameras influences the way the cameras are being used. But that's not to say that these cameras can't be used in countries for for more positive um, reasons. Well, all in all, it, it's it's a it's a fascinating subject. It just you know even here in in America in Los Angeles whenever I'm learning about China I I, I feel like I'm I, I'm right on the cutting edge of human society and civilization and it just feels like it's a, a for better and for worse a, a peek into a future that is going to affect at least 1.4 billion people but is likely to affect all of us so thank you for uh, for making time to to join me and for powering through despite whatever home renovations your neighbor is is up to my guest joining us from Singapore has been Lisa Lin along with fellow Wall Street Journal journalist Josh Chin co-author of the new book surveillance state inside China's quest to launch a new era of social control thanks Lisa thanks for having me Mike